From the ACLU, this is At Liberty, a podcast about the civil rights and civil liberties questions of our time. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host for this episode. Sports has long been an arena where civil rights and civil liberties questions have taken center stage. Track and field star Tommy Smith raised his fist for racial justice on the 1968 Olympic podium. Tennis great Billie Jean King fought for equal pay for women. And Olympic runner Castor Samana challenged intersex bigotry to be able to compete. But one group of athletes is often kept quiet during social movements, college athletes, largely because the institutions they play for silence them. At a time when racial justice conversations have ignited across the country, we're taking a look at how universities silence their athletes and the barriers to holding those universities accountable. Joining us to talk about college athletes and free speech is Frank Lamonti, First Amendment lawyer and director of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. Frank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Since the George Floyd protests started in May, college sports has seen a a kind of shift. Student athletes are speaking out on racism at their school, and they're speaking sometimes in defiance of their university's ban on free speech. Why is this an exceptional moment? How is it different from previous moments? Yeah, it's really remarkable. I think you're seeing the confluence of two societal factors that are of specific relevance and salience to the young people in that college athlete cohort. You mentioned the big one, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement, but combine that with COVID-19 and the really urgent personal concern that people have for their own safety and that of their families. And it's just created this moment in our history where I think that 18, 19, 20-year-old cohort, and particularly when you're talking about athletes, you're talking about people of color, disproportionately feel compelled that they have to make their voices heard. And in years past, it's been very difficult for them to do that because the atmosphere surrounding college athletics, both as a matter of official formal university policy and just as a matter of the culture of college athletics has really emphasized silence. It's emphasized don't rock the boat, don't stir up controversy, and don't do anything that damages either your reputation or that of your program by associating it with matters of political controversy. And can you tell us a little bit about how they've tamped down on free speech? What are the methods they've used to do it? And also, what kinds of free speech are we talking about? Is it social media? Is it other arenas? Well, so when you think about your college athlete, right, you're a 19-year-old college student, what are the avenues that you have to make your voice heard to a larger public audience? You don't own a printing press. You don't own a television station. So basically, you've got two routes. You can either use social media or you can give an interview to the news media. That's about it. Universities historically have been highly controlling over both of those channels. Uh, It's very commonplace for college athletic departments or for the individual coaches to impose either outright bans on social media or bans on particular social media channels, no having a Twitter account, for instance, or to enforce bans on unapproved and unauthorized communications between athletes and the news media. Part of our research at the Breckner Center has been looking at these uh, what we call gag policies, where uh, college athletes are being subjected to conditions that would not be enforceable against any other student, where they're told you have to clear any interaction with the news media with the athletic department in advance and get it approved, and that they reserve the right to disapprove it at any time for any reason. 
And you've talked about a sort of also an infrastructure of maintaining this control. Uh, you cited one case where the University of Louisville used a social media modern company called Udiligence. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So even when athletes are not categorically banned from participating in social media, universities often, in the name of protecting the reputation of the athlete or protecting their own reputations, will require that as a condition of having that social media account being part of the team, that you have to accept a degree of very intrusive monitoring sometimes where a private contracting firm will be flagging keywords. So they have red flag terms or anything that might involve violence or sex or drugs or, or unfortunately, sometimes political controversy. And one big question I have is why? I mean, there are some obvious reasons I can think of, like what you said a justification is to sort of like protect the players. But but is there something deeper going on? When you're a university, you're very sensitive to kind of your position in the marketplace as it regards fundraising, donations, grants, recruiting, right? All of these things, it kind of puts them in a position unlike other government agencies. If you're a police department, you're a sheriff's office, you're a jail, right? You don't have nearly the same concern with marketing yourself to donors, but that's not true of a public university. So little of their money these days comes from direct governmental appropriations, and so much of it has to be raised either by donations, by grants, or by tuition, right? So all of those things coincide around image and reputation. So they're very, very protective of that image and, and doubly so around athletics because when you think about, well, what are the things that attract either positive or negative attention to a university, athletics are right at the top of the list. But in, in First Amendment land, right, I mean, if you think about the justifications that a government agency could conceivably use to override your First Amendment rights as a speaker, two of the weakest ones that you could possibly formulate would be, well, we don't want people to think poorly of this government agency. That's an especially bad justification. But but even worse is we're protecting you from the consequences of your own speech that you might say something stupid and we're going to stop you from speaking. And this is, this is literally a part of the policy and practice of athletic departments. Well, we don't want these students to say anything that might damage their brand, that might damage their ability to market themselves later as professionals. And so we're going to stop them from speaking so they don't inflict harm on themselves. And, you know, as a citizen, right, this should be nails on the chalkboard that a government agency is telling you, we're going to stop you from speaking because we're afraid that you might use bad judgment and our judgment's better than yours. And what's particularly disturbing right now is that we're talking about speech around racial justice movements and speaking out about personal interactions with coaches and people in leadership who have used racial slurs or racially biased language. Can you give an example of where speech that is about trying to make an impact in a social justice space for these athletes has sort of hit the road? Because what we're talking about is why would that be a reputational consideration for universities? Isn't it a positive that in an educational space that students and athletes would want to speak out against injustice and make a change? Well, you would think that would be so, right? You would think that when you're an institution of higher education, that being a place that values free speech and the free exchange of ideas would be a positive marketing point for you. But 
unfortunately, when you're dealing with the audience that particularly follows, let's say, college football, right, you're dealing with sometimes a really, you know, conservative, and I mean that not in the sense of Republican, Democrat, conservative, but conservative as in, you know, these are wealthy, affluent business people, right? They're part of the power structure. And the idea that your students are out there criticizing the power structure, right? The idea that your students are using the platform and the prominence that athletics gives them to kind of challenge the power structure could be really unsettling to those people, those millionaires who buy the skyboxes, right? And so I think that universities know very well where their bread is buttered and they don't want to be associated with political controversy. And I think doubly so in sports. They understand if you're a, you know, the president of the Student Government Association, okay, you're going to engage in political speech. But I think they don't think that's the place of the athletes. They think it is your place to follow orders and be obedient and do as we tell you. And part of that is you address the issues that we approve for you to address, which is next Saturday's game. And, and that's it. So I think there's a definite cultural kind of an issue about what the proper place is of sports and what the proper place is of young people's voices and are those voices really valued. So yeah, it, it would be nice to think, right, that universities would promote themselves as being places that are welcoming of the free exchange of ideas. And that's often the case when people are engaging on issues, you know, they want to talk about famine in Darfur, fine, the university's happy for you to do that. But once it gets a little closer to home, once you're starting to agitate for changes in your own community or even worse to them within your own athletic program, then they get very sensitive about that. You know, we're seeing that in places like University of Iowa right now. Oh, can you speak more to the University of Iowa example? So, yeah, I mean, University of Iowa is a, a dramatic example of how students, frankly, have kind of blown through the stop sign. You know, uh, for many years, University of Iowa has been like almost every other institution of higher ed in America, highly controlling both of what students can say and use social media for and also what they can and can't say to the news media. But there have been, and it really started, honestly, with alumni of the Iowa athletic program. And they were the ones who were sort of safe from punitive action by the athletic department and felt empowered and emboldened to speak out. But if I could just they- insert, punitive action also includes taking away their scholarships, which has huge economic consequences for these players. Right. And that's what I think creates this really intimidating power imbalance where you can see it would take an especially brave person to be emboldened to defy that power structure or as in the case of somebody who's graduated, somebody who no longer has anything to lose. And that's what we saw at Iowa, that people started speaking out about a particular member of the coaching staff that they felt had had a habitual practice of using racially insensitive and insulting language toward the players. And then some current players started to get on board and say, yeah, me too. Right. And actually, we spoke to a recently graduated Iowa football player about this very movement within the program. I'd actually like to play some of that conversation for you now. You'll hear a member of the podcast team, Audrey Mostak, interviewing the player whose name is Torin Young. There's been a lot of players speaking up on their experiences and, you know, got the conversation going about pushing for change in, in Iowa's football program. And I will say that I know for a fact that Iowa's not the only program that has these types of incidents or problems going on you go to a predominantly white institution and you're bound to run into some of these things. With Iowa, with players speaking up, it got the ball rolling. And I know it woke up a lot of athletes at other schools and other colleges. What does the Twitter ban being lifted mean for future Iowa players? I think future players will definitely 
feel more comfortable to express the way they feel and and to express their views with everything going on in the world today and with that band being lifted. I know some of those guys have been more active on Twitter. It's a place where you could share your thoughts, share your feelings. Our roles have always been everything's going to be laid out for you. You're going to go to practice at this time. You'll lift at this time. You'll eat at this time, sleep at this time, go to class at this time. And it's kind of like, you know, as athletes, we don't have much control. You just do what you're asked, do what you're told. But at the end of the day, you have to realize that the athletes are the ones who are laying their bodies on the line, going all out and investing in the school and football. Ultimately, we should, you know, have more of a say in what goes on in our day-to-day lives and, you know, how we go about things and, you know, what we'll receive and how certain things should be going on around the building. To finally see players kind of stand up for themselves and to speak up and and make their demands, that's it's great to see. I hope that what other athletes elsewhere will see is that it is actually possible to survive this, right? It is actually possible to speak out and address an issue, particularly of racial justice and particularly where you have unique inside knowledge that's valuable for the community to hear that they can speak out and they can survive it and they really won't be punished for it. And speaking of legal advice, let's turn to the law a little bit. You're a lawyer. We're the ACLU. Is student speech categorically at public universities covered by the First Amendment? Like, should this be a non-issue in some ways? It ought to be, but there's an asterisk associated with that. I guess maybe two or three asterisks. The first is that the U.S. Supreme Court has really only taken a handful of student speech cases over its history, and even fewer of those in the higher ed setting. Really, a lot of the foundational First Amendment cases that affect student free speech arose in the K-12 setting, and it's an open and unsettled question how much of that legal authority does or should apply to the post-secondary setting. I would maintain as a First Amendment lawyer and advocate that very little of it should apply to the post-secondary setting, that although I think actually the rights of K-12 students are way too constrained, and that's a different conversation, but even if you're going to acknowledge that there are some tight constraints on the speech of K-12 students, what are the unique features of K-12 school that justify that? I think two things. The age of the audience, right? You're dealing with impressionable young ears, children, and the captive nature of the audience that, you know, there are mandatory attendance laws in every state. There are truancy laws. You can't get up out of your chair in algebra class and walk out the door. If you hear something you don't like, you are required by law to be there. And so those two things uniquely apply to the K-12 setting, but they don't apply to higher ed. You're not talking to children and you're not required by law to be there. And so for that reason, I really think that the restrictive K-12 jurisprudence ought not apply at all to people on the higher ed level. But because the Supreme Court has failed to give clear guidance on this, the lower courts are all over the board. And are there protections any different when it comes to athletics? I mean, that seems to be the arena where some of this is playing out. Are the rules actually any different? Or is this all sort of a cultural decision within these individual universities? Yeah, so we've done some research at Breckner Center about this question, and I've got a law journal article that's about to come out any day in the Nebraska Law Review that addresses this exact question. Like, we know that the First Amendment is going to apply 
if you are a garden variety college student, right, you're just a Joe college student, you're going to have at least some degree of First Amendment protection. And it's going to be, you would think, at least as good as what K-12 students have, right? We also know that the First Amendment is going to apply fairly rigorously if you are a public employee. So if you are drawing a paycheck from the university, you have rights that can't be taken away. And the Supreme Court and a number of circuit courts have said that that includes the right to talk about the things that you've learned at work to the press and the public. That is a right that cannot categorically be denied to you. So you start with that premise. Well, if an athlete has the student hat on, then there doesn't seem to be any First Amendment authority for the proposition that a university could say, nobody gets to talk to the press, right? A university couldn't tell all 20,000 students on campus, nobody here gets to talk to the press without our permission. That would be just laughably unconstitutional. If they have the public employee hat on, likewise, they can't be gagged from talking to the media. So that's the real question. If you're a college athlete, you're not really exactly a student. You're not really exactly an employee. You're sort of a hybrid of both. But in neither body of case law, is there any foundation that would support a categorical gag on speaking to the media without permission? And what about from the other angle of this? What does the law say about holding administrators who sort of impose some of these restrictions accountable for their actions? How does that work? Well, as we've been learning in the dialogue about holding police officers accountable for use of excessive force, this doctrine called qualified immunity that has grown up over the years judicially is a very powerful limiting factor on being able to hold any government employee responsible for violating individual constitutional rights. What qualified immunity says simply is unless the plaintiff in a civil action is able to show not just that their rights were violated, but that their rights were violated in a way that the government defendant knew at the time was unconstitutional based on clearly established legal precedent, then there can be no damages and there will be no case. And case after case, both in the police setting and in the educational setting, has been thrown out, even meritorious cases where real constitutional violations happen because the plaintiff couldn't surmount that barrier of showing not just my rights were violated, but that there was a almost identical twin court case that would have alerted these very defendants that what they were doing was unlawful at the time. Is there any hope that this could change? Is there any active litigation that is seeking to sort of make this, revise this qualified immunity doctrine and the limitations it presents? Yeah, well, I think that there's action going on in multiple theaters, you know, after the George Floyd case in Minnesota and after the resurgence of protests around the country about police violence, we've seen interest in Congress and scaling back the doctrine of qualified immunity. So there's some promise there. But there's a a case actually pending at the Supreme Court right now. It's on their uh, September 29th docket for discussion that is in the higher ed setting. It's uh, the Paul Hunt versus University of New Mexico Board of Regents. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that case because it's a really colorful case. And it's one that, frankly, I I hope people will see as kind of a no-brainer constitutional case and one that, but for the doctrine of qualified immunity, would be going forward. And what happens is Paul Hunt is a a very politically conservative uh, student at the University of New Mexico Medical School. He's 24 years old. 
He's uh, outraged when President Obama gets reelected in 2012, and he goes online on his Facebook page and on, on a personal page, in, in no way affiliated with the medical school or the university, um, just vents about how much he hates abortion and how angry he is at abortion advocates, and he compares them to Nazis and uses some f bombs. And it's a, you know it's a very strongly worded and very uncivil post. But if we know anything about the law of the First Amendment, we know that you don't have an obligation to speak politely to people, and particularly not when you're addressing a political issue. And they bring him up on disciplinary charges under this incivility policy. And he sues under the First Amendment. Ought to be core political speech entitled to the highest degree of protection. And yet uh, the district court and then the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals both say, well, there's enough confusion about the law of the First Amendment in the higher ed setting that the law is not clearly established and you win university. No damages for you, Hunt. No case for you. And the cert petition is now before the U.S. Supreme Court. We've been needing the Supreme Court for a very, very long time to wade in on the issue of does the First Amendment apply to off-campus online speech in the same exact way that it does to off-campus speech? Or, as I would argue, should there be heightened protection when you're off-campus on personal time using your own social media account? You're not inside that classroom. You're not inside that institutional building. And we've been needing them to weigh in and do that. And I just can't imagine that this set of facts would not be catnip for these justices. Hmm. And one interesting point that you've raised before is that Tamping down on athletic student speech is a symptom of potentially a larger issue around information control at the university level. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and what you found recently. I think you did sort of a year-long project focusing on how universities control what you call information access. Tell us what you found. Yeah, so um, we had the good fortune at University of Florida to be able to uh, engage Sarah Gannam, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, won the Pulitzer for the Jerry Sandusky scandal at Penn State. And Sarah and I formulated this idea of doing a deep dive into government secrecy and all the ways in which government conceals documents and data that the law ought to entitle the public to see. There are some obvious questions where you say to yourself, of course, government agencies must be tracking and collecting and reporting the data on this particular data point, because how else could they do their job capably if they don't do that? And then you slap your head and you find out, in fact, that doesn't exist, or it exists, but none of us get to see it. We have runaway privacy laws in this country. Uh, the federal student privacy law, FERPA, while very well-intentioned and while there's a nucleus of records that all of us agree ought to be kept confidential, has grown up exponentially over the years through a aggressive lawyering by schools and colleges so that now anything and everything that an educational institution wants to keep from the public can be miscategorized as a FERPA education record so that it can be withheld. And inclusive in this sort of information control is also COVID testing, right? Reporting on positive COVID cases, which particularly in the athletic arena, seems to be really important to be able to, to have a public discourse about whether it makes sense to hold games right now, how we're endangering athletes. Can you speak more to that particular point? Yeah, it's remarkable. And this does get back to the misapplication of privacy law. And privacy law often is misunderstood and people have actual good faith misunderstandings about it through bad training. And sometimes it's not a good faith misunderstanding. Sometimes it's really being consciously manipulated for purposes of concealment. And it's hard to tell which is true. But for example, um, in the state of Arizona right now, the Arizona University system, despite being told by their own state attorney general that they ought to be disclosed 
closing campus by campus, how frequently people are testing positive for COVID so that they can make informed, educated decisions about whether they feel safe enrolling there or not. The university system is insisting, well, no, we interpret federal privacy law differently than our own attorney general, and we will not give out even numerals, even statistics about the number of positive tests. But this is now a literal matter of life and death. You really ought to go with your eyes open and well-informed about, do we have three COVID cases here or do we have 300? That data at a public university is a matter of public record that belongs to you and me, and it ought to be turned over. And one other point here is we can't ignore that the college sports industry is a multi-multi-billion dollar industry. And I'm curious, you know, it seems like the administrators, the people in charge at these universities who oversee these athletic programs have a huge stake in A, not paying players, which has been an ongoing issue, and B, controlling how these players speak, their public image, because not that the players are profiting, but they're profiting. Can you talk more about how tamping down on free speech and money are intertwined? Yeah, I I think they absolutely are. And I think this goes back to the idea that somehow when an athlete becomes embroiled in a matter of political controversy, that that's bad marketing somehow. You know, we saw that at, uh, for example, Kennesaw State University down in Georgia, right? Uh, The cheer squad at Kennesaw State, major public university, engaged in a uh, lookalike Colin Kaepernick protest where the cheerleaders were taking a knee to raise awareness and make a statement about violence against unarmed black people by police. And the university cracked down on their ability to do that. And it was directly because of alumni and political pressure, people saying, we don't want the athletic program to be associated with a matter of political controversy. So they saw it as being bad for business. So yeah, I mean, I think what's happened is that colleges have allowed their business investment and their business concern in those athletic programs, the television contracts, the marketing that brings in millions of dollars uh, to their programs to override what ought to be their absolutism about individual liberties and constitutional rights, which we expect of higher ed. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, to say that the National Football League won't hire Colin Kaepernick, which is outrageous on its own, and we should be angry about that as well. But that's a private business. They get to do what they want, right? Uh, but and these Colin are Kaepernick agencies. is an adult as well. His While there are economic interests for him, he's an adult. He's not a student. It's a very different power dynamic. Right. When you're that college student, your relationship with them, you know, the president of that university is basically, he's the governor or she is, or or the mayor, right? I mean, they're the most powerful political governmental official in your life. And they have that level of governmental authority over you. They can discipline you, right? And these are powerful, well-paid government officials who have power over police, housing, healthcare, food services, right? It's like a little town. And we we certainly wouldn't allow the mayor of the town to come to us and say, hey, nobody here in this town is allowed to talk to the news media without my permission. We'd be outraged, right? We'd, We'd have pitchforks. And we'd be remiss if we didn't address race in all this. I mean, not just because the George Floyd protests were about racial injustice on the criminal justice level, but also because there is a huge racial discrepancy on the team. So, for example, Division I football, 50% of players are black. Disproportionately, the leadership in football is white. How does race interplay with all of this as well? I mean, just as a matter of optics, right, just as a matter of how this looks to the outside observer, the idea that Overwhelmingly white folks who run these athletic programs are imposing speech controls over 
teams of folks that are black and brown predominantly, it's just a terrible optic. If you're a 19-year-old black man in America and you're driving around town, you are prime racial profiling material. There's nobody more likely to get pulled over by a cop for no reason than a 19-year-old black college football player. And so if those guys can't make themselves heard, if they can't express what's on their mind about the political and social issues of the day, then not only do they lose out, but we all lose out, really. I mean, I want to hear that. Uh, you want to hear that. We all benefit from hearing that perspective. And honestly, you know, these are folks that are held in high esteem by their peers. They're influencers, right? They have the ability to bring with them, you know, th their fans, uh, their followers on social media, and, uh, and they have a megaphone. They have a platform, and they ought to be allowed to use it to address the issues they care about when there is no exception to the speech control for speech addressing matters of social and political concern, that's when the First Amendment is most directly implicated. And one facet of this that really interests me is that when you have a culture where student athletes are not allowed to speak, it feels like it plays into a much larger culture of not being able to speak out about abuse. I mean, there are the sort of famous examples of Michigan State University gymnastics with Larry Nasser and Penn State's scandal with Jerry Sandusky. And I'm curious if you think that there is a connection between tamping down on the First Amendment rights of student athletes and then the sort of festering of these abuses that went on for years and years and decades. Do you see a connection? I don't think there's any question that there's a connection. When you look at the vulnerable position that athletes are in, they're being asked sometimes to do things that are superhuman. They're being asked to do things that can be very dangerous to their own health and safety, to push themselves to the limits and sometimes beyond. And they're told to play through pain, right? If you're suffering, suck it up. That's on you, right? And in fact, part of the Law Review article, um, part of the research that we did at Breckner looks at not just the ability to speak to the news media, but also our college athletic programs kind of affirmatively suppressing whistleblowing. And if you look at some of the manuals and handbooks that young people have been given, not only do they say, do not speak to the news media without permission, but they'll actually explicitly, some of them go further and say, if you have a problem with how you're being treated, don't take it outside, quote unquote, the family. Uh, leave it inside of the locker room. And there's places like East Carolina has this, Kent State has this, Iowa State has this. A number of them will explicitly tell their athletes, we don't want to hear you complaining to the public. We don't want you blowing the whistle. And that's incredibly dangerous. I want to look forward a little bit for a moment. This is the conversation around particularly Black players at universities speaking out. This has been going on since the 60s and the 70s and more recently, 2015, after Ferguson. I'm curious if this moment feels different, if you have hope, even though this has been a problem spanning so many decades. I would say, first of all, you can't be a First Amendment lawyer and not be an optimist, right? I mean, there's no way. You, you, you have to be. And so, of course, yeah, I'm an incurable optimist. You know, we're in the midst of a much larger athlete rights movement that is starting to crest right now around the country. You see it in things like, uh, you know, California and then Florida following it, passing legislation that says athletes can 
profit off of and monetize their images so that they can actually make money in the way that only their universities have been able to make before. Uh, there have been class action lawsuits that have resulted in very lucrative settlements for athletes about things like the use of their images to sell video games. And so, yeah, we're seeing that athletes are starting to kind of tip that power imbalance a little bit. They're starting to be willing to talk back to authority collectively and to say, wait a second, everybody here has been profiting. Everybody here has been making money. Everybody here has been doing great except for us. And we want a piece of it too. So yeah, I think that the free speech movement in college athletics is just such a natural outflow of those other two societal trends. And as college athletes return to campus to train, it's looking like fall college football, for example, will go on despite COVID-19 concerns. And I'm wondering if you have a sense of what athletes can do who are facing these speech restrictions um, to change their programs. Like speaking to the power that athletes are discovering they have, what is some direction that you could give directly to those students? I will say as a First Amendment lawyer that I never try to tell anybody oh, you're perfectly safe from being retaliated against. The law is on your side, right? I mean, that would be like saying, you know, well, you know, if the police can't shoot at you, right? I mean, I can tell you police legally can't shoot at you, but I can't say they won't. Um, people break the law all the time. And so you know, I would never give an athlete a sense of false hope and say, even though the First Amendment overwhelmingly ought to be protecting your rights, the reality is that a lot of schools act like that doesn't exist. There are, you know, some really good athlete rights organizations forming out there. National Collegiate Players Association is one of them um, that can advocate on their behalf. Or frankly, I really think, and I, I'm trying to put the onus on the news media, on the people that want to talk to these athletes to step into their shoes and bring these First Amendment challenges. I don't like the idea of kind of putting it all on that poor 19-year-old mm. kid and saying, uh, so much yeah, you lose. go out there. Yeah, you, you, you defy your institution. Uh, you put it on the line. Good luck with that. I think all of us need to push back against these restrictions because, again, we all benefit from hearing their voices. That is so true. Well, Frank, thank you so much. And I'm curious, for people who want to learn more about this issue, you are engaged with a really big project. Where can people tune into that? Yeah. So um, why don't we know is the name of the podcast. And it's really easy to find because why don't we know.com. Uh, so we have a website for the podcast and the episodes are starting uh, in August and we'll be spooling out. We uh, have season one is all about higher ed and, and a little about K-12 and uh, season two uh, TBD, but already in the works. That's wonderful. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Molly, for this opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Torin, Audrey, and Frank for this conversation, and thanks so much to you all for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.